0: Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Helen Fitzroy. She's a safety advocate, an author, also a miner's widow. I'm really happy to have you join us. Helen, you've got an incredible story uh, to share in terms of the positive contribution you've made to safety, but I think maybe let's start first with Steve's story.
2: Thanks very much, Eric, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, 32 years ago, Mm. my husband Steve went to work underground. He didn't come home. I was left with three little kids under the age of seven and basically um, stuck with a new title of widow, which didn't impress me very much. And so then the whole journey began of um, how do I traverse this? And a couple of years before Steve's death, Mm. one of his really good mates, who was also a very experienced miner who worked at the same mine, um, refused to go to work on this particular shift because the particular supervisor had asked him to work under unsupported ground. Wow. And he refused to. So they sent a young... Inexperienced 21 year old in Goodness. there, and un- uh, tragically, he was killed. And just five months before Steve's death, another very good mate of his, who was also an experienced miner working at the same mine, mm. fell down a ladderway underground and um, was seriously injured. He had compound fractures of both of his Goodness. legs, along with some external injuries, so he had to get airlifted out to Perth. Um, by the flying doctor, Um, had two little kids under the age of three, and so he spent 12 months up in Perth having intensive rehab. Wow. And so leading up to all of that, there were some concerns, and Steve used to often come home and talk to me about his concerns, and so I suggested, how about we take a couple of weeks off, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can go up to Perth see how your mate's going... So we did. We shot off to Perth, had a couple of weeks, caught up with his um, mate, and um, he was back at work a week, exactly a week when he was killed. Goodness. And that's when the, you know, that's when it all started.
1: So he was raising concerns to you. He he saw those trends, and I think this is part is in often cases like that, there are signals, signs, how was the organization receiving this feedback? Because they've had fatalities, serious injuries, very short period of time.
2: It's probably worth also mentioning that he was considered, and we're talking, we were living in a mining town, it wasn't a very big mining town, but there was a whole in the gold fields there's a whole lot of little mining towns that probably had a population of you know 3 4000 people mm. max um, he was considered in that particular mining town probably the most experienced the best and the most safety conscious miner well wow. uh, so he consistently would come home and say to me because he he would go and voice his concerns mm. to the management and they would say to him, what's the matter, Fitzy, aren't you earning enough? Like, they basically just deride him, you know. And there was no... Um, oh. Like a joke, like it was a joke, you know. And so that was frustrating. Um, and so, you know, I mean, my, my advocacy is really based on if, if there'd been somebody out there uh, that was going to stand up and assert themselves and tell people a story about, you know, this is what can happen, Mm -hmm. perhaps he might have had a second thought about actually, you know, not going there anymore, going somewhere else. Um, And the thing is, you know, like in terms of when you asked me about management and what were their views, I was talking to a mines inspector Mm -hmm. a few years later and uh, he had come out from South Africa and he'd worked in the adjoining town to where we were, about 40 minutes down the road, um, another little mining town, about the same size. And he said that when he arrived there, um, and he'd had extensive experience in South Africa, Africa, even though he was an English guy, um, he said that the company, which was the same company that was managing the mine that Steve worked in, they would budget for seven fatalities a year. Just there. Seven. Thank and he said they generally achieve their target. So I know back then fatalities were just a normal part of business, doing business. You know, it was sort of... It's cheaper, really, to kill somebody at work than it is to permanently disable them because you know what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cut and dried, you know. Whereas a permanent disability, it could be, well, how long is this going to go on for? What other... You know, it, it, there's that um, uncertainty. Sure about what the cost may end up being, yeah. So yeah, that was the culture then.
1: And one of the things when you advocate about safety, you talk about is to remember the people we come home for. Tell me a little bit more about some of the messages you share.
2: Well, since Steve's death, in Australia there's been 506 more fatalities 506 oh, fatalities in mining. That's 471 kids who, who've mm-hmm. lost their dad, 100 widows. Now, that doesn't take into account the parents, the siblings, the mates. It also doesn't take into account those who've lost their life through a work-related illness or mm-hmm. disease. And so I think when, when I've looked at the stats for Canada, you're not mm-hmm. far behind... I think I tallied, and, I, and it may not be totally correct because I don't have all the stats, but I think there was about 478 in the same time frame in Canada. You know, that, that's, that's, that's yes. disgusting. And, and, you know, so I think of the... After Steve's death, I mean, it was probably around about 10 years later when I first started travelling out to mm-hmm. sites talking to people. And I was inundated with all of these phone calls and messages. It averaged out, I was getting about six a week. Wow. People asking questions. How long will that report take? When will I... How do I find this out? From families and workers. And so I started to um, make contact with, um, you know, agencies to sort of say, well, what do you offer? How can you help? I, I can see the data and the pamphlets you've written and things, but but they're all doubling up or the information is wrong. And so I met with a lot of the um, regulatory bodies and agencies and um, to try True. and encourage them to establish a support network for families following a situation like this. And they didn't think it was necessary. So I did it myself <laughs> in the end and, and developed a, a not-for-profit with the backing of a fairly big mining company here, BHP, mm. um, with their support, but my conditions were that it had to be totally independent of any particular company, political party or yeah. union. So it had to be... It it, it couldn't have any vested sure. interests. So that was established in 2010. Congratulations. And it's still going strong. Yeah, it's still going strong, so... I'm not as involved as I once was anymore. They're doing fine without me. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it's, it's good to know that there's now somewhere people can mm-hmm. go to, to seek assistance. And it, it might be financial, it might be just emotional, it might be a whole range of things, um, practical assistance to help them through that process. Because there was nothing when Steve was killed, absolutely nothing. nothing.
1: And the company didn't step up either. On that
2: no they didn't they um, and, and that wasn't unusual back then I can I know that um, they even um, my husband was a member of the local mm-hmm. union that they they were misinformed as well so everybody was you know right. their performance was inadequate uh, and so I think things have come a long way since mm-hmm. then though um, and I think they are a lot more tuned in now to pe- that people expect more, more. you know. Um, so yeah, we had to bumble our way through. I had to find my way through by myself, really.
1: Oh, in an environment where they were budgeting seven fatalities, it was it was yeah. Yeah. A process. It was yeah. it was something that accepted mm. that's horrible. Mm.
2: Mm. Mm. And then to put up with the legal five-year legal battle where there was just and i'm not just blaming the company i'm talking about the insurers and the lawyers and you know just constantly um delaying and and ridiculous sort of uh ploys that they would use to try and to try and deter Mm -hmm. you know go away just go away will you you know and so I was determined not to do sure. that. I was determined to stick to it. I felt I owed Steve mm-hmm. that um, to get to the bottom of it. And um, eventually I did. But it was a long battle. And that still happens today. I'm still in touch with a lot of families who are still going through that process. You know, it's a, it's a struggle.
1: And so you, you share about the message to the people that you speak to. Um, but you also have a message for leaders.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do.
1: Tell me a little bit about your message for for leaders in this case.
2: Well, I understand, I appreciate as a leader, there's a lot of significant data that crosses their Mm -hmm. desk on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, budget budget issues, whether it's related to production targets, whether it's related to deadlines and staffing. I I accept the significance and importance of all that information. But... The point that I'd like to to make is that in acknowledging the importance of all of that for a viable business, that has to happen, but behind every single decision that they're making, whatever it may be, there's generally a human being attached that may be or may not be impacted in a negative way by Mm -hmm. that information. So I would implore them all to consider carefully every decision that they make to ensure that There isn't going to be any unforeseen circumstances that somebody, it won't be them, but somebody else might be impacted negatively by the decision that they make.
1: And so what does that translate? Because ultimately, agree, it's understanding that there's a person behind the paper, the decision. The further away you are from the decision making, from the site, from the work, the easier it is to separate yourself and your actions, and in an event naked like fatality it becomes very easy to disassociate yourself because you don't want to have to carry the responsibility. <clears throat> so you push that burden to somebody else.
2: Absolutely, absolutely and that you've nailed it because that's that's exactly what happens. If you're sitting in an ivory tower in the middle of the CBD somewhere and you're making decisions and you know you're looking at that promotion that may come next month if you produce the goods, of course the pressure's going to be on there for you to perform and, and to do things that perhaps it might be impressive at a board level, mm-hmm. but at the front line, at the coal face, there could be somebody who's going to be impacted by that decision that you haven't considered. Sure. And, and, you know, so it's about, I suppose it's just about being um, a little bit more aware mm. of how that decision that you make while you're sitting in the comfort of your, your cushy office might impact somebody down the down the track. And, and I mean, you know, it may not always be that easy to, to determine, but particularly when you're looking at production targets and things like that where, you know, workers are often rewarded sure. if they reach partic- particular targets. You know, they're given bonuses and things. And so what happens? You know, if you're going to encourage a bonus mentality, you're going to encourage people to take risks. You're going to encourage them to, you know... Um, to maybe do things that they otherwise wouldn't. Sure. Um, and so those sorts of cultural norms, I think, can create issues as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, they had a When you mentioned this, I had a, a guest on the podcast a few, uh, few months back, and he talked about, one, the complexity and safety is when you save a penny on every dollar – it probably won't have a financial... It will probably it will have a financial consequence, but probably won't have a safety impact.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But that second penny, probably not. Mm. So then there's a temptation of just, well, what about the third, the fourth, the fifth penny? But at some point, something breaks, and you never really know which penny it was. Yeah, that's right. But it's really understanding that's the right. chain of causality. Yeah. And, and also the element he brought up was also the the more you are close and you have proximity to the site, to the people that are working, the more you're making better decisions, the more you're disconnected, staying in an Ivy Tower, no pictures of the team members that are doing the work, never been there, it becomes a transactional balance sheet decision.
2: Yeah, and I think also uh, with that comes an added, uh, it it can Mm -hmm. be quite problematic for contractors. So you can have the client and they engage contractors to come in and do a lot of the work for them and most of the time when they do that is the is the coal-face frontline hard stuff that they're doing and they have to ensure that they meet their budget constraints and they also have to make sure because they want First. the tender you know they want the next tender as well and so <clears throat> the pressure is always on them probably more so than the client um, the clients employees to perform and produce the goods, you know, because otherwise there'll be no tender.
0: This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo, Propolo has, you has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com.
1: So, so we talked about the paper, every paper matters. You touched on before that items were raised. There were signs. Organizations need to be looking for those signs or symptoms and not say squeaky wheel, but mm-hmm. trying to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you may have somebody who is a squeaky wheel, mm-hmm. complains about everything, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they're out there. But how do I really see those, right? And so but there's a lot of others that are not complaining and that surface an issue. Or even the person who complains, there will be sometimes some real legitimate pieces. How how can people help triage through all of this to take action? Because this was clearly a case where there were enough signs and symptoms to say action's needed. Well, I think
2: it comes back to good communication Mm. in leadership. Good communication in leadership means that, and trust uh, and respect, Uh, you know, the the hundreds of sites I've been to over the years, I could virtually walk into a muster room where they're doing their training or or be in there and watch the crews walk in and predict who the good Mm. leaders are just by the body language of the crew (laughs) as they walk in, you know. And that says a lot to me. And uh, it's played out numerous times where you can just tell by the way the guys are communicating with one another, the way they're walking, the way they're... um, Mm -hmm. You can read the play. And I think if we have good, supportive, respectful leaders who can communicate with every crew member, no matter what their little idiosyncrasies are, then you're going to have... The morale's going to be good, and if morale's good... Right. You're going to be productive, you know, and so to mm-hmm. me, and safe. And so to me, it all comes down to selecting carefully the leaders that you choose. And, and look, yeah. leadership starts at the top. You know, they say <laughs> fish stinks from the head down. So if you haven't got a supportive leadership team at the top, you're never yes. going to get it at the ground level. But
1: even if you have the supportive leadership team at the top, it doesn't always translate to the ground level because it has to be embed in the selection no, it, it has got to be that if i find yeah. that you're not showing up this way i do something about it and i act on it fast because we have yeah, that dialogue yeah. on a regular basis in terms of yeah. who's a good safety leader um yeah. that i act on it yeah and and it's
2: yeah and and you you're dead right you know i've been to mm. numerous sites that have been run by the same company and the culture is different in everyone. Yep. So it's not just the top team. It comes down to who's running the show here and what sort of a attitude do they have towards safety and to our workers and to, to the morale of our team and, and how, what do they rate as significant, you know, to to our guys on, on site. Um, it, it was a really mind-boggling to me that I could go to five different sites all run by the same company yet the culture the safety culture was different at every one of them
1: and i think that's an important point you bring up because i often advocate that yes you may have one culture but there can be a lot of subcultures that exist and not wrapping your head around these subcultures can be really a blind spot because you may be 90 percent good but Mm -hmm. you may have a bad side i remember i had couple couple years back somebody on this podcast who worked for an organization he acknowledged had a very positive safety culture uh, but he he raised an issue and in his small location which was a very very small remote rural area it was a, a utility when he raised a concern which later proved to be a serious injury that happened um he was told both by the union leader and the local management are you a man or a mouse Right? So in other words, go do the thing, don't complain. Okay. And literally, shortly thereafter, seriously injured. But the organization as a whole was mm. good. But obviously there was pockets of leadership in the union and management that shouldn't yeah. have been there. Yeah. And I think what you bring up is really this element of yeah. you've got to know and you've got to act on those differences. Mm.
2: Mm. And that's mm. hard. And it's, it's one of those things that you, you're probably getting inevitable that you're yeah. going to get those pockets everywhere. You know, like there's some that just slip through the the hoop and they're out there and they're, you know, macho men who kind of, uh, you know, like, I've seen (laughs) them. I know they're out there. Um, You just like to think there's someone a little bit higher than them that's going to pull them into gear (laughs) every now and again. But, yeah, it's it's a sad reality.
1: So I know when we first connected, you touched on a theme which is very near and dear to me, is this difference between safety... As a core value versus safety as a priority and clear difference some speak of it as a priority some talk about it as a value tell me a little bit about what that means and the importance Mm. of that
2: well it started to evolve way back when i first started Mm -hmm. traveling out to site and it didn't seem to matter particularly i think Mm -hmm. in the first couple of years and i went to every jurisdiction in australia and it didn't seem to matter where I went in that first couple of years, somebody usually within the management team or supervisor would come up to me in in conversation and say something along the lines of, you know, we make safety our number Mm -hmm. one priority here. Now, with all due respect, Mm -hmm. and this is just my personal opinion, (laughs) that's just bullshit, priorities always get shifted. If you make something a priority you've given it a shelf life in my eyes. It can only be a priority until something more important comes along. And that's the nature of the world we now live in. That's why it has to be a value. It has to be embedded, endemic, intrinsic to every single thing that you do. You can't just Mm -hmm. flick it off and on when you've got time or when someone's watching or when you've got the resources. You know, you take it home with you. It's all the things in your life that you value. And I think you know we need to we need to encourage buying from the top down because we want to ensure that we have genuine consistent commitment from every single leader in the organization to ensure every single person on that site goes home safely actions speak louder than words
1: and, and but i think it links back to what you shared of before is if people are raising concerns raising issues if it's a value and it's really understood like that, then people wouldn't close their eyes to it, neglect it. It'd be really core to understand it.
2: That's right. That's right. And the quote that I came up with after that little encounter, after the numerous encounters, was, if safety was a core value in my workplace, there'd be no need, need to prioritise it. So, you know, you, you, can, you, you can hear people say over and over and over again, I still hear it when I go out to sites, look, safety's our number one priority here. You know, well, look, I know you probably mean well, but just rethink that, will you? Because you have to be realistic, you know, and you've got to do it Mm -hmm. a different way. You know, it can't be... Priorities inevitably get shifted. And so I'd prefer that they, you know... I prefer that they rephrase that.
1: But I think the consequences is much more than than rephrasing. It's also how people show up. Because I've seen it in organizations where it's the number one priority and then they have the strategic imperatives for the next five years and safety is not on the chart. And then somebody raises their hand and says, shouldn't safety be there? And they're like, oh, right. Because it's not a dialogue at the C-suite. It's not... A value It's not something that people are evaluated on. It's not reinforced day in and day out. And so it gets forgotten.
2: And one of the, you're right, and one of the really interesting things that I've discovered over the years is um, I've noticed on the um, media online, when there's mm. a fatality and the company might come out and they'll report that there's been an incident and tragically somebody's life has been taken and we're supporting the family and we're doing this and we're supporting our colleagues and whatever, then the last sentence will usually be the daily share price. Now, to me, Mm. I have real issues with that being in the same article, you know. Now, whether that's the fault of the journalist who's thrown it together or whatever, but it seems to be a consistent pattern that I find quite offensive, um, that you're talking about, you know... uh, the welfare of of somebody who's gone through a tragic experience or the loss of a life, and then at the bottom you've got the share price. Uh, The two don't go together, in my view, and never will.
1: Right. Yeah. So last topic I'd like to touch on is boom versus bust. And mining is probably more extreme uh, than a lot of other industries. Um, So what's the impact of boom versus bust in mining and safety?
2: Well, well, I guess back in 2000, mm. the mid-2000s here in Australia, and I don't know whether this was a global thing, but I, definitely in, in Australia, the boom, there was a boom, you know. And so, you know, everybody, every company is scrambling for more employees. They want to sure. get that stuff out of the ground as quickly as they can. And it got to the stage uh, where um, they were employing people... Um one supervisor that I spoke to out on a side in the goldfield said to me, basically, all you need to get a job on the mines now is you need to be standing <laughs> vertically and breathing. <laughs> and and that's, that was sort of how it was. He he said that he'd had a busload of young guys that he'd picked up from the airport, and one of them, he said, what's your job? What are you coming out here to do? He said, oh, I'm going to drive a truck. This is underground mine. Have you ever driven a, a truck under... Have you ever been underground up? So he said, how the hell do I manage and supervise these mm-hmm. young guys, you know? So that was, the tr- that, that was the circumstance in the boom and saw it firsthand. Um, then sort of around 2015... Sure. ..there was a deep downturn. Oh, a- actually, throughout that mid-2000 boom period... In five years, we had 101 fatalities in the industry.
1: Well wow.
2: You know, so that indicates to me, you can sort of, if, if you look at a graph, you can see the spike, you know. Um, and then back, uh, or moving on a decade, 2015, there was a downturn and, and people getting laid off. Uh, other employees were expected to wear mm. two hats and do the same job. So the pressure was on, like in terms of, we still need to get this stuff out of the ground, but we're going to have to do it more economically without sure. as many people. And so then you start getting people taking shortcuts, people are, you know, their their morale's low. And so the same old pattern comes back again, you know, incidents, in, increasing incidents and increasing fatalities as well. And so it'd be just really nice if they could find <laughs> an even kill <laughs> instead of, you know, um, but I don't think that's... That's
1: how the industry works. It's, it's hard, right, because it, there's, there's definitely peaks and valleys, and mining is probably one of those top peaks and valleys yeah, yeah. industries. Yeah,
2: definitely.
1: Yeah. The, the element, though, I've I definitely seen in mining where in valleys, where, where the economy is not strong, sites get shut down, locations get shut down, and I've seen it where the narrative started changing that safety is not physical safety but it's putting food on my family's table and that becomes very dangerous because they associate the mm-hmm. mines that weren't mm-hmm. as successful mm-hmm. and that were shut down were maybe safer mm-hmm. mines but less productive minds. and then they start rewiring mm-hmm. that it's safety yeah, yeah, actually gets yeah, yeah. in the way of my personal safety which is putting food on my family's table that becomes very dangerous uh, but yeah. i've also seen other organizations that yeah. were cola was an example where there was an end date Either a mind side or in a generation side, and things continued very well because the leaders really focusing saying, "Until the last day, we will be safe." So, part of it is also yeah. the choice of knowing yeah. that even if we won't be here for forever, how do I lead in that context?
2: Yeah, that's right, and that comes back to leadership, you know, and the culture mm-hmm. that they establish and set, and that everybody feels comfortable to have buy-in, you know, because if you right. don't get buy-in from the employees that are there on site, you can sprout what you like, but if they don't feel that they can trust or believe what you're saying, and that's mm-hmm. where actions speak louder than words, if you're demonstrating that that's, that's your commitment, then you will get buy-in. Um, right. You know, I think too often the guys the guys on site roll their eyes and here we go again, you know, like... And that, that, that tells you a lot about yeah. the culture that's established there, you know. So I think what you were um, demonstrating by your example is what every company should be aspiring to.
1: Right. And there are ways to hire maybe in advance of a boom. You can't perfectly time it, but you're not desperate at the last minute to, to take anybody. There are ways to recruit higher quality talent. Yeah. There's ways to invest in better training if you know there's going to be gaps because of of who you're able to get. There's there's mitigations to a lot of these Mm. elements, but it's just being aware of it and recognizing because in both cases, it can have very negative effects.
2: Yeah, for sure. And the other issue too is that, you know, like if you're putting, like I refer back to the boom here in the mid 2000s where you know, you could walk off the street and get a job. And a lot of these uh, were young kids really, you know, like um, late teens, early twenties who, yeah, yeah, I want to get in there. I want to get some good, serious money. I want to, you know, but if something happens to them, there's no comeback other than like for the families. So, you know, mum and dad at home, they can't sue the company. They can't. You know, you can, you can have a common law claim, but there's no payment made to families or whatever unless you're a dependent. So for young, single um, guys who who don't have any dependents, which most of them don't, you know, there's no comeback. There's no comeback. So it's advantageous to employ Goodness. young, single guys Goodness. or girls, you know, because there's no... Litigation forthcoming, other than from the regulator, who might decide that your practices weren't any good, you know. Um, but as far as the loved ones, no, nothing. And you know, there's been numerous examples of families that I've spoken to, where uh, one instance was a family from Broken Hill, and the dad he'd worked all he'd worked thirty years in the mines underground, and his son was killed in WA. Um, the company were fined fifty thousand dollars. Now, this is a big yeah. Australian company that everybody globally has heard of. They were disgusted and really totally offended that their son's life was worth fifty thousand dollars. Now, they yeah. didn't get that money. You know, it, that was, that just went into the coffers for the state regulator. But it's 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 an insult. You know, to think that uh, with all of these. Um, issues that were found to be so so inadequate where he was working that they find that he was fined, you know they were fined $50,000 and there's numerous there's numerous similar similar stories to that you know so um, every life's valuable
1: absolutely ellen thank you so much for joining me on the show today thank you for your advocacy for safety but also for the families of those that lose a loved one and if somebody wants to get in touch with you what's the the best way to do that
2: well they can email me um and i have a website too so either either email me or go to my website and send me a message that'd be great Excellent.
1: thank you so much helen
2: thanks heaps eric
1: thank you cheers take care bye
2: thank you bye
0: Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Macrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.